to take out your Bibles and to open them up with me this morning to the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, Song of Solomon. If you are a guest with us this morning, uh, we are very glad that you are here. And we certainly hope and pray that your time with us this morning will be a blessing to you. Uh, Know that you are welcome uh, anytime. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, no worries. We have Bibles provided for you that you can use in the seats in front of you. Uh, We certainly want you to be able to see the text in front of you. We believe that God works through the biblical text as we look at it together. And so if you choose to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 560. Uh, Page 560. The Song of Solomon, or as verse 1 puts it, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. In other words, this isn't just a song. It's not just any old song. It's a song of songs. Of all the songs that existed in the ancient world, This one is presented to us as the highest, as the best, as the song of all songs. Why? Why was this the best of all the ancient songs? Well, perhaps because it came from the pen of Solomon, regarded as a man full of wisdom from God. But I think this song is regarded as the song of songs because of its content, because of what it's about, because of its theme. The Song of Solomon is about love. It's about the love that a bride feels for her bridegroom. It's about the love that a bridegroom shows to his bride. And ultimately, above everything else... This book is about the love that is experienced between Christ and His church. And I simply ask, what theme could be higher than that? What topic could a song tackle that would be of of grander worth than the theme of Christ and His love for His people? What could be more wonderful than this? And so it is the song of songs. The great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, knew the entire song of Solomon by heart. The Puritans thought it was perhaps the highest and the richest of all the books of the Bible. In our church, we've been off and on working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans since 2008. The Puritans spent that many years working verse by verse through the Song of Solomon, preaching through it one verse at a time, two verses at a time. They thought it was perhaps the holiest, the the most sacred of all the books. Jonathan Edwards talked about his late teen years and how much this particular book of the Bible meant to him at that stage of his life. He said those words in Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 1 used to be abundantly with me. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. 
He said, the words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Song of Songs used to be pleasant to me. I used to be much in reading it. I found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. Far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ, wrapped up and swallowed up in God. The sense that I had of divine things would often all of a sudden kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I know not how to express. So beginning this morning, I am attempting something a bit risky. I am going to try and preach on Christ and his love from the Song of Solomon on our upcoming Lord's Supper Sundays, the first Sunday of each month. I'm not promising you that I will stick with this. (laughs) I am promising you that we will start and we will see how it goes. I say that this is risky, not so much because of the sensual content of the book that people often think first about. I think preaching through this book is risky because it is really hard to find words to convey the height and the breadth and the depth of the love that's being sung about here. Preachers try and find words to explain spiritual truths, but sometimes the truths being taught are so astounding that working with words just doesn't seem adequate. There's a reason this is a song. Songs sometimes help us sense more of the weight of a truth than just speaking normally. And I don't know that I will have the words to be able to communicate always what's in this book. It's like trying to build a skyscraper, and I have Play-Doh to work with. And so I I approach this book with some fear and some trembling. I I approach this book as holy ground. I'm going to give it my best shot, but it will take the Holy Spirit for you to really know and to grasp in your heart the full magnificence of the love that this book is trying to relate to us. Now, I need to give you a word up front about our translation. Uh, Many of you know I I love the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's the version of the Bible that I preach out of. I think the ESV is is a good translation, maybe even a great translation. But I really wish that they had not added these labels of who they think is speaking throughout this book. So if you have an ESV, you may notice these labels all throughout the book. She, others, she, he, others, she. Uh, Other translations do the same thing. Uh, Others, like the New American Standard, have their labels, but they put them in the footnotes rather than in the body of the text. And they're great if you happen to agree completely with the editors about who's speaking. But know that this is not actually part of the biblical text. These labels are the Bible translators doing their best to guess at who is speaking. Uh, So even here in the first four verses that we're looking at this morning, we're told that the bride is speaking first. That's the she in your Bible. Hopefully you see that, the she. And then halfway through verse 4, 
the translators say that the speaker changes. They say now a group of others are speaking. Uh, They assume that when the speaker goes from saying me, like at the beginning of verse 4, draw me after you, and then changes to we, this is the second half of verse 4, we will exult, they assume it it must be a different speaker. And so they add in the label others. Now, there are other speakers in the book of Song of Solomon. There, are a to- there, there will be times that we will see where others speak. But friends, I think it's important to know that this bride in the Song of Solomon isn't a normal bride. The bride here, uh, in her deepest significance, is surely the people of God. This bride is both one and many. This is, this is God's bride, the bride of Christ, the church composed of every person from Adam to the last believer who ever lives. And so the bride can speak singularly. The bride can speak of me, just as we as individual Christians speak singularly. But this bride can also speak in the plural because the bride of Christ is all the people of God. It's a group. And so just at least know that as we go through these first four verses, and in my opinion, all the way down to verse 7, we have one speaker. And it is the bride. It is the bride. So now let's begin reading. We're going to begin reading in verse 2, and we're going to read through verse 4. And this is the very word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Well, as we look at these verses this morning, I am simply going to make two points. Two points. Here we go. Number one, see that Christ's love is very sweet. See that Christ's love is very sweet. What is the cry of the bride? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is the bride crying out for more of her bridegroom's affection. We want more of Christ's affection. We want to experience more of Christ's love. It is one thing to know that Christ loves us. It is one thing to have it settled in the courts of heaven that we are His forever. But it is another thing to actually experience Christ's love. We are never closer to heaven in this life than in those moments when Christ comes to us in His Spirit and causes our hearts to well up with a real sense of Christ's love. It is far too easy for us to treat the love of Christ as simply an intellectual thing. It is far too easy for us to treat the love of Jesus as an idea, but the bride isn't crying out, help me to know more of your love intellectually. Teach me more of the doctrine of your love. No. Just come and kiss me, my groom. Let me experience your love. It wasn't the idea of Christ's love 
that brought you to salvation and transformed your life. There was a moment when you heard the gospel and Jesus caused you to sense in your soul something of the warmth of his love for you, even in the midst of your sin. Even in the midst of your life as a, as a hell-bound sinner, the gospel was proclaimed to you and there was suddenly a sense, he will forgive me and love me and take me to himself. And it was that sense of his love. Oh, knowledge was there, but it wasn't just knowledge. It was knowledge and sense together. And it drew you to Christ. And it was that first experience of the love of Jesus, dear Christian, that radically altered your life forever. And just as a married couple continues to pursue showing affection to one another, actually experiencing one another's love so the maturing Christian is always longing for more of Christ's love. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found Christ, we need no more seek Him. In the midst of this great chill, there are some who will not be content with shallow logic. They want to taste, to touch with their hearts the wonder that is God. And he said, I want deliberately to encourage these mighty longings after God. Mount Hermon, I simply ask you, do you continue to have in your soul mighty longings for more of God? For more of the experience of his wonder and his love? Is there something in your heart that cries out for more of your Savior's love? A greater view of God's glory? Is there anything in you this morning that wants an increased sense of the beauty of God? David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians in the 1700s. He said this, he said, When I really enjoy God... I feel my desires for him the more insatiable, my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness, oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain, it makes my soul press after God. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And is there now a pleasing pain in your soul as you pursue hard for more of Him through the study of His Word and drawing near to Him in prayer and growing in the communion of saints? Blaise Pascal is often remembered as a great mathematician, a great thinker, and he had a cool first name, right? Blaise. So Blaise Pascal but one night, as he was thinking about the things of God, Jesus caused him to sense afresh something of, of his great love. And Pascal wrote down some key words about his experience that night. And when he had died, they found these words sewn into the inside of his coat. And here were his notes about that experience pulled from his coat. This day of grace, 1654, from about half past ten at night to about half past midnight, 
fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. Security, feeling, joy, peace. The God of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the human soul. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. May I never be separated from him. Do you remember the experience of Dwight L. Moody? He said, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. He said, I cannot describe it. He said, I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience for me to name. He said, Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. Moody said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Moody said he had an experience where he was so overcome by his experience of God's love for him that he actually had to ask God to lit up a little. It was more than he could bear. Now you might not have ever had an experience of the love of Jesus to the unique degree that Pascal or Moody did. But oh, how we should long for more visitations of Christ's felt presence and for a greater continual sense of his love in our souls all the time. Think for a minute about what a privilege it is to be one of Christ's people. Think about the privilege of being part of his bride. In older days, many people would kneel before a king and kiss his signet ring as a sign of submission. But it was, the Christ, it was the king's beloved. It was the king's bride who was kissed by the king. Who knew close, intimate love with the king. In the same way, we are not just subjects of King Jesus, though that is true. He has actually made us one with him. He has made us not only his friend, but his, his very companion. Indeed, he calls us his own body. What an incredible thing to have access to the king of the universe. What an amazing thing to hold such a high place in his heart and in his affections. Dear Christian, you are loved beyond what you can imagine. You are loved by the one who holds all things in his hands our passage says that the bridegroom's love is better than wine i have to admit i i don't get that because i can count on one hand the number of times i've drank wine one was when i was in romania and they asked me to lead a lord's supper service and they they used real wine and I'm just going to be honest, I don't get why people buy this stuff because I've just never liked it, right? I just, it's just, maybe it's an acquired taste and my, maybe my taste buds are too simple. I just don't have the, com- the complexity. I don't know, but I, I don't get it. So, so my version of the Song of Solomon would say, Christ's love is better than an iced caramel latte from Dunkin' Donuts. That's what mine. It's not quite as poetic. It's not as beautiful. Don Fortner says this, he says, Wine is a comforting, strengthening, exhilarating beverage. It rejoices the heart, 
revives the spirits and soothes the nerves of a man. But the love of Christ is far better than even the best of wine. When the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it is like the drinking of some heavenly wine. Oh, that we might have this blessed intoxication, that we might be filled with the wine of Christ's love. The bride also talks here about the love of her bridegroom using the picture of oils, right? Oils are popular these days. Get a lot of people selling their oils for people to use. Uh, she says first that, that his anointing oils are fragrant, We know this picture because it's used throughout the Bible. Anointing oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person as they were being anointed by the Spirit for whatever calling God was placing upon them. Anointing oil was a picture of that person being set aside by the Holy Spirit for some great purpose and being empowered by the Holy Spirit for that purpose. But dear friends, no one has ever been more full of the Spirit of God than Jesus Christ Himself. No one has ever been anointed with more oil, with more fragrant oil, has had a greater experience of the Holy Spirit than Jesus. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No one has ever been marked by these qualities to the degree that your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is marked by them. He is the very essence of love, joy, and peace. He is so patient towards us, so kind towards us, so good towards us. Jesus is faithful. He's he's gentle. And friends, don't just think of how good Jesus is as our bridegroom. but Think about how undeserving we are to be His. We are not standing here this morning as an attractive bride for Christ. We were criminals. We were sentenced to death by the groom's father. Christ doesn't care about outward beauty. Christ looks at the heart. And what did Christ see when he looked at us before we were saved? He saw the grotesqueness of our hearts. That our hearts are full of selfishness and pride and idolatry. I am not overstating the biblical case when I say that we are a disgusting bride, a repulsive bride. And yet, because of who He is, Christ set His love on us. And He took the punishment that our crimes deserved. And He reconciled us to the Father. And He has set the wedding wedding date The the great wedding feast will soon come. And as we wait for that day, he is washing his bride. He is preparing his bride. He is making his bride clean through the water of the word so that when that great wedding day comes, we will shine. We will be radiant. No one will be able to realize that this person is... What happened? All those makeover shows today, right? Making over people, making over homes. This is the ultimate makeover that Christ is working in His bride. We belong in the gallows. And instead, we are being taken into the King's chambers. We belong in hell. And we are being given heaven. 
She says, your name is oil poured out. When oil is poured out, you know what happens. The aroma fills the room. Solomon, who wrote this, lived in Jerusalem where sacrifices by the hundreds and even the thousands were going on daily. To be frank, the smell of daily life in Jerusalem was horrific. There were animals everywhere all through the streets. There's a reason that when you look at a map of ancient Jerusalem, there are bathing pools everywhere. It was a stinky place to live. And so oil was incredibly important. Because it helped mask the foul odors of the city. People would put a little oil on themselves to mask their own smell. They would put oil in their homes to make their homes smell nice. But to the sinner, headed towards hell, what can be more wonderful? What can be more delightful than the name of Jesus Christ? His name is like oil poured out. It is a a pleasant aroma to us. How does your heart respond when you hear the name of your beloved? The name of Jesus literally means salvation, right? What did the angel tell Joseph? You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This name of our bridegroom, Jesus, it means everything to us as the bride, Some people have strange names. I remember the first time I heard of a kid named Poindexter. And I was wondering, what were his parents thinking? Um, But you know, to the woman who has fallen in love with Poindexter, that name means something to her. That name is, glad there's no Poindexters in the room. I hope. (laughs) To, 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 to the wife of Poindexter, right? That name is special. It, it means love to her. Others may find it silly, but to her, the name means the man she loves above all others, and that name is pleasant to her. Dear Christian, what does the name of Jesus Christ mean to you? Does your heart leap when you hear his name? Jesus, name of matchless splendor, name all other names above, glorious Son of God incarnate, King of kings and Lord of love, name that to our hearts is dearest, here the stricken soul doth hide, name that to our hearts is dearest, as in Jesus we confide. Oh, the love of Jesus for us is very sweet. Second point, very briefly. Christ compels our love for him. Christ compels our love for him. It's all over the passage. Look at the end of verse 3. We read, therefore, virgins love you. Why? Why do the, the young maidens of Jerusalem love this bridegroom? Why? Because his love is so good. Because it's better than wine. Because his name is oil poured out. In other words, Christ wins the love of his people by opening their eyes to see and experience his love for them. We love him because he first loved us. So many people in this world are walking around blind. You and I used to be among them. 
People would talk about Jesus and the joy of knowing Jesus and his great love, and that meant nothing to us. We, we were captivated by other things. We were captivated by TV shows and other people in our lives and certain things we were pursuing, careers, hobbies, whatever it was. But when people started talking about Jesus, that it just didn't mean much to us. And then Christ calls us to know our sin. He caused us to see ourselves as we really are. And then he drew us near through the message of the gospel. He helped us to grasp for the first time what he had done for us at the cross as he bore not just the wrath of his people. No, he bore my wrath at the cross. And as Jesus caused us to see his love, to know his love, we, we placed our trust in him. This is what we're talking about when we talk about irresistible grace, right? Having our eyes opened to see how wonderful Jesus is and to taste something of his love, we could not help but give ourselves an ultimate allegiance to him. But had God not done a work in our life, we would never have seen nor known his love. John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There has never been a Christian who took the first step towards Jesus. Never. God always took the first step. Jesus always took the first step. He draws us. And we respond in faith. Sometimes there are couples where uh, the man is the first to take the initiative. Maybe he asks the lady out on a date. Maybe if he's old-fashioned, he asks the father if he can court the daughter. Maybe he, he sends a letter expressing his love to this girl. Other times, it may be the lady who makes the first move. Maybe she gets tired of waiting and finally says to the young man, ask me out already. But in our relationship with Christ... The initiative was all with him. Our hearts were so messed up that if he had waited on us, we would still be blind. We would be separated from him and we would be on our way to hell. He drew us into his love. But dear friends, even once you become a Christian, it is still Christ who must continue to draw us. If Christ doesn't continue to show us his love, to show us his glory, to show us his goodness, our fickle hearts will fall out of love with him. This is why he commands us to gather like this, so that we can be reminded again and again and again of his great love for us, so that our love can arise back to him in response. We are just like Gomer in the book of Hosea. We are so prone to be unfaithful. Our love is so fickle. If Christ doesn't keep us believing, if he doesn't keep us trusting him, if he doesn't keep us loving him, we will fall away. So how does Jesus keep his people saved? He continues to show them throughout their lives more of his goodness, more of his love. And so the bride cries out in verse 4, draw me after you. Christ, keep drawing me near. Don't let me turn aside. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Draw me after you. If Christ, by his spirit through his word, will help us to continually remember his goodness and love, 
then we will keep following him. We won't be able to help ourselves. We will run with him. We will walk with Christ and be his forever. And so that's what Christ does. Through the Bible, through the local church, through Christian fellowship, even through, through nature, through trials, and in other ways, Jesus keeps working to bring you back again and again to fresh experiences of his love and his faithfulness. And in that way, he gets you safely to the wedding feast on the last day. He will make sure you make it safely to heaven. We are fickle, but he is faithful. And what a thought that he takes messed up people like us into his chambers to know his love. What is our response to this? It is joyful praise. You see it? We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Our hearts cry out that Jesus is worthy of the love of all his people. Rightly do they love him. Rightly do we love him. Oh, that we had a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. Oh, that we had a thousand hearts that we could give him so that, because our hearts right now are so weak with love. Our response to the love of Jesus is to praise him and to boast of him to others. Our response to the love of Jesus is to honor him and to walk worthy of him as we await our wedding day. Our response to the love of Jesus is to prepare ourselves for that day by growing in Christian holiness and Christian maturity. Our response as we wait for that day is to come to this Lord's table where we remember the bride price that Jesus paid that we would be his bride. He gave so much to purchase us for himself. And we are so unworthy. And so as we come to this table, the bridegroom's table, the table of Jesus Christ, the Lord's table, we come rejoicing that he loves us so much. And we come rejoicing that this little snack is the pledge of a sweeter communion meal that we will know with him and share with him on that great wedding day to come. Oh, Lord Jesus quickly. Let's pray.